Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to another Mythgard Academy class. We are doing <clears throat> The Lays of Beleriand uh, by Tolkien. That is volume three in the History of Middle-earth series. Um, this is really cool. You know, I remember years ago, uh, some, uh, some of my Twitter followers sort of asking me, hey, are you ever going to do a series where you go through the whole History of Middle-earth series? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm going to have time to do that. But, uh, but here we are now with our third consecutive volume in the History of Middle-earth series. Uh, and uh, it's been really cool so far. I have so much enjoyed our study of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, in, uh, you know, in the last couple uh, Tolkien classes that we did. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to the Lays of Beleriand. I have taught the Lay of Lathian once, but I have never taught the alliterative uh, uh, Lay of the Children of Hurin, which we're starting tonight. Um, and um, I have... Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, Nancy Fosberg is saying she was speculating that I was happy about a whole book of Tolkien poetry. Absolutely. Nancy, I'm, I'm sort of doubly happy about it because, uh, of course, as I've mentioned before, this semester, this summer at Mythgard, I'm teaching my uh, full semester class in uh, uh, on Tolkien's poetry. Um, but we're really just able to do his short poems. Uh, so I, we're sort of going through his whole career looking at the short poems that he wrote. Um, and it's plenty to talk about uh, for a semester because he wrote a lot of poems, more than people expect. But I had to skip the long poems because we didn't have time for those. So Nancy here, now, you know, the Mythgard Academy electorate has handed me this wonderful opportunity to do two of the big poems that I had to skip for that class. So, uh, um, so I was uh, I was excited about that. Um, uh, Brian is asking about reading aloud alliterative verse. Oh, we'll get there, Brian. We'll do that. It's wonderful to read aloud once you get the hang of the of the of the rhythm. We'll work on that in a little bit. Um, Yana, uh, thanks. Yana was reminding me. Um, uh, for those of you who are new, if you would like to. Uh, sort of chat amongst yourselves during the uh, during the discussion. Uh, you're welcome to do that. Um, we have uh, we should have a chat window. Yana, is it up on the on the Laser Beleriand page? Um, it should be, um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, it should be there. Um, okay, good. Yeah. So if you go to the Laser Beleriand web page, uh, there should be a little bouncing icon in the bottom right-hand corner uh, that you can go and open up the chat window there. Uh, so, uh, so again, you're welcome to do that. Not, not required. The way that you communicate with me is through the questions box there on your GoToWebinar control panel. Um, but if you want to talk among yourselves, you are, you are very welcome to do that. Um, okay. So, um, all right. Yeah, I know. It's where all the cool kids hang out, Karita. It's so true. Um, all right. Um, let's. Um, uh, oh, thanks, Yana. Yeah. Why don't I do that? Uh, thank you, Yana. I'm going to be. I am posting to people who are here the link. There it is. So if you want to go there directly, there you have it. Thank you for that. Um, uh, and Kathy, it is the link is there. It's just a little bit harder to find. We're actually going through. We're sort of in step one of the process of overhauling our website. We're, we're, we're building an entirely new website for MythGuard, so we're doing some stuff with our directories. 
I'll be totally honest, it's completely over my head. I don't understand what is going on. But people that I know and trust are are, are doing this, and uh, there's stuff going on. So uh, there, our site is in a little bit of disarray right now, so we're uh, sorting that out. But anyway, the page is there, uh, and... Um, uh, and you sh- and so I, you, sh- you can just follow the link that I just posted, and it should uh, it should work. Um. <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's 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 start with a little bit of background. Here. Well, first of all, before we start with a little bit of background, let's um, uh, let's do some quick announcements because I have a big announcement, which is that we uh, have officially begun registration for our uh, fall classes this semester, and we've got three really exciting classes coming up. Uh, First, one that I've announced already, um, which this has been open for for a little while. It's, uh, it's, uh, well, again, all three of these classes are brand new classes that we've never offered before. Um, But it's a really special opportunity, and that is the Star Wars class with Amy Sturgis. She's going to be doing a thorough study of the whole Star Wars world, looking at all of the films and uh, looking at uh, many of the uh, many of the the book uh, uh, worlds as well sort of the way in which that world has been used um, you know as basis of subcreation she's going to be doing uh, an interview you know one of the uh, one of the authors of the of the Star Wars books is going to be coming in and and speaking in one of the classes uh, it's going to be a really really great uh, thing Amy Sturgis is just absolutely brilliant at presenting sort of the background history and and sort of cultural phenomenon of a thing you know she's her her specialization is intellectual history um and if you've never gotten to take a, a course with amy sturgis as for instance one of her wonderful classes on science fiction for instance where she'll go through and show you uh the the sort of the the, the development of the science fiction movement from the 19th century forward just amazingly fascinating stuff she will uh, she will show you so much that you never knew even about books that you that you love and movements that you're interested in um so anyway so so seeing an amy sturgis take on not just star wars the movies but star wars the entire cultural phenomenon and sort of where it grew from and where it fits within the within the the the, the sort of the cultural moment and the literary moment is just it's it's going to be absolutely fantastic so that's one of the classes the star wars class the second uh class is a class which our students have been clamoring for for a long time, and we, it is finally here. And that is an introduction to Anglo-Saxon. Um, you know, I assume if you're here tonight, you're a Tolkien fan. I'd be pretty surprised if uh, there were people who were uh, um, uh, who were attending a class on the ways of Beleriand who weren't already Tolkien fans. But uh, if you're a Tolkien fan, uh, you almost certainly have some kind of understanding of the fact of how, of how important uh, the Anglo-Saxon language and Anglo-Saxon literature was to Tolkien. And, uh, you know, and it's hard sort of not to sort of become aware of that as you read Tolkien more and more. Um, and, you know, so I know that there are many, many Tolkien fans who are interested to be able to learn more about it. I mean, again, you can only hear Tolkien talk about Anglo-Saxon and how important it is for so long before you begin to sort of think, okay, I really, really wish that I could read this stuff and sit down with, uh, um, with, uh, with, with, you know, Beowulf myself and see what this thing's all about. Um, so we are offering an introduction to Anglo-Saxon. It will take you from, from, from zero to reading Beowulf by the end of the semester. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the class is team taught. The primary lectures in the class 
are being offered by Mike Drought, uh, one of the great Anglo-Saxon scholars of our day and one of the great Tolkien scholars of our day. Um, Mike Drought is just an incredible teacher. Um, so he'll be, uh, be walking students through the grammar of Anglo-Saxon and then sort of introducing them to translating Anglo-Saxon poetry and then working through some of the major Anglo-Saxon poems. Um, uh, then we're going to, uh, and then, but then, in, in addition, there's going to be a lot of hands-on uh, attention. This, the, 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 another portion of the class is also going to be taught uh, by Nelson Goring, one of our, uh, one of our faculty who has taught with Tom Shippey in the Beowulf class and our philology class, um, who's going to be, you know, sort of helping people as they're going through and learning the grammar. There'll be a lot of, uh, a lot of support and help if you're, if you're taking this class and trying to learn the language from scratch. Um, so it should be a really, really great opportunity um to get to read you know so you know you've heard you've heard that you know the uh you know where's the horse and the rider where is the horn that was blowing poem uh you know in the two towers is based on an anglo-saxon poem is based on the wanderer well wouldn't it be great to be able to read the wanderer and see what's going on in the wanderer it's one of the poems that will uh, that uh, people who take this class will be uh, able to read will be reading and discussing in in, in anglo-saxon by the end of the semester so uh, it should be just a, a really really fun opportunity so that's second star wars class intro to anglo-saxon and third um, we have another very special opportunity. Um, a first-time faculty member uh, who's offering a new class with us at Mythgard, John Garth, author of Tolkien and the Great War, is going to be teaching a class called Tolkien's Wars and Middle-Earth. It's going to be an in-depth look at Tolkien's early life and its influence on his books. So if you want to learn more about Tolkien and his relationship with his childhood you know, friends in the TCBS, um, those, uh, you know, those people who were so deeply influential in Tolkien's early literary career, the people that he sort of set out in partnership with, uh, you know, several of whom died in World War One. Um, and then looking at World War One and his time of convalescence, especially for those of you who did the uh, Book of Lost Tales class with me, the, uh, uh, John Garth is going to be going through a bunch of the Lost Tales period stuff and looking at that in the context of Tolkien's own experience. Um, it should be really, really fascinating. If you've, uh, I, I certainly hope uh, you've had the chance to read John Garth's wonderful book, Tolkien and the Great War. Um, the, uh, the, the material this class is going to cover is going to overlap with that book, but he's going to go into a great deal more depth with a bunch of new things that he's been looking at uh, and researching and exploring since he wrote the book. Um, so it's going to be, uh, that's going to be really cool. As you guys probably know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about Tolkien's biography, um, and it's not my specialty, and and I'm never really comfortable looking at those kinds of interactions. Um, but, you know, it's obviously silly for me to kind of carry on and be like, Tolkien's life has nothing to do with his writing, and we should just not even think about it at all and just read the books. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a pretty uh, uh, silly and one-sided way to, to, uh, to study his works. Um, so this course with, uh, with John Garth is just a great opportunity to really dig into uh, Tolkien's own life and background. Um, and to begin to really see some of the roots of what he's doing uh, in Middle-earth, especially in the early years. So, those are the three classes that are coming up this fall. Uh, it's, it's a really neat 
uh, array of classes, so I hope that you will get a chance to check those out. As I said, our webpage is in some disarray, uh, so the links are kind of hard to find just now, but keep an eye out for that. We will be, uh, we'll be posting those, and I'll be, if you follow my Twitter feed, I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, tweeting some direct links for those pretty soon here, too, so that you can see those pages. Um, anyway, so those are our announcements. That's the fall courses are the big announcement. Um, now let's, uh, Let's think about the ways of Beleriand. So, okay. Um, in the ways of Beleriand, I know we're kind of going into nearly uncharted waters. Uh, the ways of Beleriand is way outside most Tolkien fans' reading list. Um, uh, and I know, you know, whenever I say something like, very few people have read the ways of Beleriand, you know, I always get a whole bunch of people who pop up and are like, oh, but I've read it, and I've read it, and I've read it. Yeah, sure, I'm not saying nobody's read the ways of Beleriand, but it is, it is, I mean, I would have to bet, if you made a list of all of the works of Tolkien that have been published, the Lays of Beleriand would be in the bottom five, as far as the number of people who have actually read this book cover to cover. Um, it is extremely unpopular. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is it's full of poetry. You look, it's just, it's, it's, the works that are in this book are all poetic. We're going to be doing lots of poetry together this this uh, in, you know during these eight weeks of this class. Um, even the people who read through, you know, who read the history of Middle Earth at all, often skip this book or long parts of this book or whole po- sections and poems of this book, um, be- because again, people tend to do that with uh, uh, with poems. So um, <laughs> Sarah Lagarde says Finn and Hengist is probably at the bottom. Probably, Sarah, especially since that one's really hard to find. Uh, it, it can be difficult to, uh, to, uh, um, to acquire. Um, but um, anyway, so we're going to go where so few have gone before, and we're going to read The Ways of Beleriand together this semester. And um, we need to be thinking about... Um, uh, Jordan Sunderland is asking me, what would I say are the other in the bottom five? Well, I agree with Sarah. Finn and Hengist would be down there. Um, you know, I wonder... I'm not sure. I mean, I've not done... I've not gathered data on this, so I'm just kind of guessing and sort of basically putting things together from anecdotes, chiefly. But I would say uh, the Peoples of Middle-Earth, uh, the, the final volume, volume 12, of, uh, of the History of Middle-Earth would also definitely be there, and probably the War of the Jewels, really the last two volumes. Um, Sauron defeated Morgoth's Ring, the history of, uh, of, of the Lord of the Rings set, you know, those three in the middle, uh, the Return of the Shadow, the Treason of Isengard, and the War of the Ring. Um, the Lost Road and the Shaping of Middle-Earth have a lot of things that people uh, refer to in them, um, and some some things that aren't, you know, unique things that aren't available anywhere else. Um, so they get a fair amount of play. The Books of Lost Tales, I think, are tops among the um, the History of Middle-Earth series. So I'd say The War of the Jewels and the Peoples of Middle-Earth, The Lays of Beleriand, Finn and Hengist, and... Well... Mr. Bliss, I won't count Mr. Bliss. That hardly counts, because that's really hard to get. Uh, that's the picture book that he drew. Um, uh, uh, so I won't even count that. That's not even fair. Roverandum, maybe. Yeah, Brianna, that's... Um, um, that's uh, possible. It's possible. I wonder how many people have actually sat down and read The Adventures of Tom Bombadil cover to cover. That is, you know, the collection of poems. Again, because poetry, right? Um... 
yeah, not sure about that. Um, but uh, but anyway, Jordan, those would be my 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 guesses. Um, anyway, okay, sorry. So let's think about where we are in the context of Tolkien's life and his literary career. Um, and again, this is uh, this is review uh, for those of you who were with me during the Book of Lost Tales classes, right? Because you remember sort of where we were there. In the Book of Lost Tales period, which starts from about the middle of the of the 19-teens up through um, before 1920, um, which is, so we're talking about during the time of World War One and in the latter parts of World War One, when he was invalided out and he was in a hospital uh, and convalescent. Uh, from the uh, from the, the the sickness, he got trench fever um, in France. Um, during that time was when he was writing the Book of Lost Tales, and uh, so you'll remember that basically the Book of Lost Tales is his first attempt to um, do the whole thing, right? To bring together these stories that he was writing. So he had these stories. Some of them he had written before, like The Fall of Gondolin he had written earlier. Um, uh, the Turin story was growing out of uh, his version of the Kulervo story uh, from the Kalevala, which is being uh, published, which is being released uh, very soon. Um, uh, anyway, so um, that's um, that's so again, some of those stories had already been growing independently, but he put them all together and wanted to make that big overarching mythology um, encased within the frame narrative of Ariel, the man who finds his way to Tal Arisea and hears all these stories from the elves. Um, that was his first attempt at a really big story. And in a sense, that thing that he started doing when he started writing the Book of Lost Tales was the thing he never stopped doing, that, which was still unfinished when he died, um, and which he was working on throughout his entire life. Um, and which, to some extent, even the writing of The Lord of the Rings was kind of, uh, was kind of a, a, a... I won't say a distraction, because that's totally unfair, um, but a, a, almost a digression. Um, even you know, in his later years, in, in the '60s, um, when he was, uh, you know, so you know, well after the Lord of the Rings had been published, and he's, um, you know, he's very happy with the Lord of the Rings, but he's still calling the Silmarillion his great work. Um, so that still hasn't changed by that time. Anyway, so what happened to the Book of Lost Tales? If this is his great work, and he started it then. Why didn't he finish it? Why is it still left in the unfinished state that it is? Well, what seems to have happened, based upon, of course, what we saw in the in the previous class when we looked at the Book of Lost Tales, Volume Two, was that as he come to the you know, as so often, largely because of Tolkien's career as a professor, um, he always had to sort of set his writing aside and immerse himself in the terms. So when 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 school was in session, he had very little time. Uh, at his disposal to work on his writing. So what you see over the course of his career is basically these sort of big bursts of productivity which coincide with uh, with school holidays. When, when uh, you know, when Leeds or Oxford is not in session. Uh, and then he sets it aside and comes back. Well, this is one of the reasons why he had the kind of stop and start 
uh, pattern. It's one of the reasons that ke- it's one of the things that kept him from persevering all the way through to the end of so many projects. So many projects he started and broke off. And again, you can see the pattern. He will start something and he'll work on it for a couple months during during holidays, and then the term will come and he'll set it aside and he'll go back to the term and then he'll come back to it three months later at the end of term, and he'll be like, okay, where was I? But he'll reread it and say, mm, no, I don't like this, or actually I want to come at this a different way, or I think instead of carrying on where I left off, I'm just going to start again, and, and then it never gets finished. And Or, as in the case of the Book of Lost Tales, he comes back to it and says, actually, no, I want to take this in a completely different direction. So after writing what looks like a good 75% or more of the Book of Lost Tales... It's not just that he ran out of steam or gave up on it or got bored with it or something like that. He didn't do any of those things. What seems to have happened instead was he was like, no, I have this really exciting new direction that I want to take the Book of Lost Tales in. So you'll remember when we did Volume 2 and we looked at his shift from Ariel to Alfwina as the narrator. And of course, it's not just a change in character. It was really a very broad change in the whole conception of those stories and the historical frame and how it interacts with England and the, uh, and the, the sort of pseudo-historical uh, you know, background of the tales and everything. Um, he, he, he had a, a major change about how he wanted to do that. Had he followed through on that, it would have required... He couldn't just, so in other words, he couldn't just carry on where he left off, you know, he'd gotten like 80% of the way through or something, he couldn't just carry on and finish the last 20%. He had this new idea, and so in order to do it, he would have had to go back and rewrite that other 80%, and he didn't have time, and and, and that's where, that's where, as so often happens, when his ideas just change radically, been, you know, confronted with having to go back and rework everything again, he just didn't have time, and he ended up setting it aside. So that seems to me what happens, and by the way, I'm not stating this authoritatively. I'm, this is That's my own conclusion that I base upon what I see in the texts that he left us there, um, that that seems to be what happened. Um, but uh, anyway, so so what does he do then? Having left, uh, Having set aside the Book of Lost Tales, what does he do? what we are beginning with tonight is where he picks up. Um, He decides, okay, essentially what he seems to have done is said, all right, we're not, um, instead of going back and starting the Book of Lost Tales again, instead of going back and looking at that overarching mythological story, instead of doing the whole history of, you know, the whole history of the elves, what, uh, you know, what came later on to be called the first age of Middle-earth, um, instead of doing all that again, I'm just going to focus in on some of the chief stories. I'm going to try to do an epic version of... So I'm, I'm, I'm going to set the whole thing aside. I'm just going to take one story, in this case the story uh, which he called Turin Baran the Foaloke in the Book of Lost Tales, the story of Turin, and he said, I- I'm just going to do that one. right? Um, and... Um, It's really interesting to see the choices that he makes when he decides, all right, I'm going to extract these things. I'm not going to be just integrating them as chapters within a larger narrative. I'm going to set them on their own. And one of the important things to remember here, of course, the reason, uh, the, 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 the primary reason that Christopher Tolkien has given us the Lays of Beleriand is so that we can see the evolution of Tolkien's ideas about 
the first age of Middle-earth, right? So that we can follow the thread of the Silmarillion ideas as Tolkien developed them throughout his life, and the Lays of Beleriand are an, import, are an important stage in that development. I... This is going to shock you, because of course this is exactly what I did all through the Book of Lost Tales. I don't want to focus on that primarily in our discussion, because remember, in choosing to do what he did, in choosing to sit down and say, I'm going to write an epic poem of Turin Turambar, he was envisioning an audience for that poem. An audience which would not know the Book of Lost Tales, because they hadn't finished that, right? Um, it's pretty clear that he intended this for circulation. This wasn't just a private project on his own. Now, he abandoned it, and he didn't ever really widely circulate the thing. Um, but it's clear that he did, in fact, when he sat down to write these poems, um, you can see even, you know, he talks about this in his letters as well, that um, there's no point in writing something if you're not going to have an audience. You know, that, that um, there's no real satisfaction in writing if nobody ever reads it. Um, so it's, it's, it's plain that he always wished for, at least, hoped for an audience to read this. His goal was to get this published freestanding, okay? Therefore, it's really interesting and important, I think, for us to be thinking about this as a freestanding work. As we open, uh, you know, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, to imagine that we are people who have picked the Lay of the Children of Hurin off a bookshelf. Um, as, you know, imagining that he got the thing published and trying to understand it on that ground. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, Sarah King had just asked that. Do I think they were verses, they were, they were written for publication? Absolutely. We know for a fact that he attempted to get the Lay of Lathian published. Um, after he got The Hobbit published, when, uh, when Alan and Unwin were clamoring for something more, he was like, well, I'm kind of stumped when it comes to Hobbit sequels, but, um, but I have this thing lying around, which maybe you'd be interested in. Right, so he sends him the Lay of Lathian, um, uh, hoping to be able to get the Lay of Lathian published. And Alan and Unwin were, were like, mm, ah, mm, ah, no. But they they actually sort of followed through. I mean, they did their due diligence and sent it to an outside reader and uh, and all kinds. So I mean, it, it, he actually sort of initiated the process with the Lay of Lathian. Didn't happen. But uh, but again, we know that 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 desire was there. He actually followed through on that desire to some extent, with the Lay of Lathian. He never did that, um, as far as we know, with, the, uh, with the, uh, the Lay of the Children of Hurin. But when he was sitting there writing it, was that his goal? I have to think that that was his goal. Again, based on his own sort of testimony in his letters, that seems to be, that seems to be his goal. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see... Yeah, Yana, I too wish that Tolkien had pushed forward these ep with these epic poems and finished them. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it would be nice. I mean, there, obviously, there's so many of Tolkien's things that I wish we had gotten the end of. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, but now keep in mind, when I talk about Tolkien publishing things, this is before anything else, right? Now, you can't blame him sending the Lay of Lathian off after The Hobbit was published and the publishers are excited about more. Um, but let's not forget timing there. The Hobbit was published in 1937, right? So we're talking, these poems are all written before 1930. Um, the dates here, uh, The Lay of the Children of Hurin was begun either in 1918 or 1921, as you might have noticed in the notes, Tolkien wrote 21 and crossed it out and wrote 18. Um, 
and uh, <clears throat> Christopher Tolkien shows that it can't possibly have been written before 1918 uh, because it's actually written on a uh, some stuff from the uh, the Oxford English Dictionary that Tolkien was working on. It's dated 1918. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, I. So anyway, so he started in 1918 or 1921 and stopped it, stopped working on it by 1925. Um, so in other words, the Lays of the Children of Hurin fits in uh, pretty neatly in his time at the University of Leeds, um, uh, which was from 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 20 to 25. Um, then that's when it's in 1925 that he took the position at Oxford, which he would then be in for the rest of his career. Um, but he was at Leeds up north before that for those for those few years. Um, so his time when he shifted south seems to be also when he shifted from about when anyway he shifted from working on the lays of the children the lay of the children of Hurin to the lay of Lathian. Um, uh, Arthur Harris says they're having a discussion in the chat room about the benefit of speaking these poems as opposed to reading them silently. Do I have any thoughts about that? Do I have any thoughts about that? Holy cow! Yeah. Read them aloud. Always read them aloud. Always read any poetry aloud, but especially... Well, actually, you have to be kind of careful about that, because sometimes when you read some poetry aloud, you find that it doesn't sound quite so good as it looks on the page. But that's generally not true of Tolkien's poems. Tolkien's poems should always be read aloud. He has a wonderful ear for rhythm and uh, and does just really wonderful and fun things uh, with rhythm. Um in my poetry class this semester, uh, I found so many new things. Uh, I never fully appreciated until I taught this class what a wild and crazy metrical experimenter Tolkien was. He does some wacky stuff in his poems. Um, it's just amazing. Um, like the poems where he'll do this, where he'll sustain throughout the poem this meter where he does half the line in one meter and shifts to another meter in the second half of the line, and it'll do that every single line of the whole poem. I've never seen anybody do anything like that before. Um, uh, he loves to play with sound uh, and to manipulate sound and rhythm, and uh, and he conveys a lot by uh, uh, with that. And it's totally true, uh, Sharon, that uh, m- many of my sharp poetry students have helped in these discoveries. Absolutely. Sarah King, who is here tonight, helped me understand the Gondor Gondor poem that Aragorn says for the first time in my life. Uh, and Yana, there absolutely should be an audiobook of this. Uh, absolutely, there should. Um, there doesn't. It, it not only does there not exist an audiobook of this. I don't even believe there exists an uh, an e-text of this book. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's a shame. Um, Yana says I should publish them in a podcast. <sighs> Yana, I get really frustrated with this. Um, I am all for publishers' rights. I am all for royalties going to authors. Believe me. Um, And I have great respect for text copyright and that kind of thing. But when an audio version is not made available to people who legally own a copy of the book, um, I get really frustrated with that and it's the kind of thing that does make me want to record my own versions okay it's the kind of thing that makes me want to distribute the versions <laughs> that I may or may not have already recorded myself uh, because I can't myself survive without an audio version of these things um, but 
anyway, um, uh, let's, uh, but anyway, enough of that. Tempt me not. Um, so what happens after this? So, cause so again, we're in the twenties again, late teens, right? Tolkien's doing the book of lost tales. He breaks that off, turns instead to epic poetry, right? Says, okay, um, it's, I'm not just going to retell. I'm just. I'm, I'm not just going to dig in and really make sort of full. I almost said novel length, but of course it's not novels that he was writing, right? A full length narrative of these great stories: the story of Turin, the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, but I'm going to do it in verse, right? Um, he does this in the 20s. Was a time of major poetic experimentation for him. He was doing a really wide array of poetic stuff. He was writing a lot of poetry in the 20s. Um, the 20s are where you get things as varied as the poems that he's doing here, as well as most of the most funny and outrageous poems he ever wrote, um, like the original version of the Oliphant poem, which is freaking hilarious if you ever get a chance to read it. Um, by the way, in this regard, someone was asking earlier about the adventures of Tom Bombadil um, is, uh, was asking if the version in the Tolkien reader is complete. Yes, but um, it is the complete uh, version of the adventures of Tom Bombadil as it was published, but I absolutely urge you uh, if you can to get the version, uh, the new edition of the Adventures of Tom Bombadil that was just edited by Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull and was just released last year. Um, it's only sold in England uh, in hardcover, but you can get it in America in electronic version. Totally worth it because um, it contains the original versions of every single poem in the Adventures of Tom Bombadil, some of which were ne- have never been in print anywhere before. Um, and it is so awesome. It is worth it just for the Oliphant poem alone, actually, um, which is just absolutely hilarious. Um, so he wrote that. He wrote the Man in the Moon poems. Uh, you know, the Man in the Moon uh, stayed up too late. The one which is the you know, the Cat and the Fiddle poem uh, from the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, he wrote the original of Sam, of, of of the Troll Song, uh, the Root of the Boot. Uh, you know, so he's writing all of these uh, wild and crazy. Um, uh, poems, um, and uh, but he's also doing. You know, I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to do the Turin story, all in alliterative verse, an epic poem in alliterative verse. Um, just doing a, a really, really wide array of poetic stuff. Doing the doing these stories as poems seems to me pretty clearly to fulfill two desires for Tolkien, two impulses that he shows throughout his career, but very strongly here at, you know, sort of in these sort of uh, early decades of his adult career. Um, and th- and those are poetry. Again, he had this, this really, I almost said voracious, but that's not the right uh, metaphor because he's not consuming, he's putting out. Uh, he had this enormously prolific um, poetic uh, uh, inclination, churned out poems uh, through this period. But it also gives him the opportunity to... That other impulse he had, which was to work out the way that Tolkien managed to marry together his creative and his scholarly impulses. Um, 
and I, the more of Tolkien's stuff, by which I mean his poetry and fiction, as well as, as his, uh, his scholarship uh, that I read, the more convinced I get that that was really where Tolkien's heart was. Um, what he was most happy doing was writing essentially medieval fanfic, right? That is, uh, he, he wasn't happy just talking about... Um, you know, these Anglo-Saxon and uh, Middle English poems that he was reading and working on during this time. During the time that he was uh, writing the uh, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, this long alliterative poem, he was working on editing uh, a new edition of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight um, with E.V. Gordon at Leeds. And here we have him writing in an, in an alliterative meter, which to me sounds quite like uh, the Gowan poet um, at several po- with, with, with in, in many of its cadences. It reminds me of that. Um, so again, you can see he's he is at, you know in his professional life um, in you know the sort of the, the the northern and Anglo-Saxon poetic tradition. He is absolutely steeped in this kind of of alliterative poetry. It is for Tolkien the most natural thing in the world for him to say, "I want to write it. Um, I can best come to understand this if I can live within it myself." It was the perfect. It was the I think the fullest fruition of his scholarly investigations, as well as a really satisfying vent for his creative impulses as well. Um, so again, it makes though it might seem strange to a complete outsider uh, like. Why are you writing a long alliterative poem in modern English that doesn't even make sense, right? Uh, Most outside people would probably think that um, when they came to it. Yet, within the context of Tolkien's life and, and, and how his mind worked and the kind of things that he produced, it makes all kinds of sense. Um, so what comes of this? Taking a peek at what comes next... Um, although both of these poems, the two main poems in this book, the Children of Hurin, the the Lay of the Children of Hurin, and the Lay of Lathian, um, neither one of them are finished. The Lay of Lathian goes further, at least there's more of it. I mean, uh, than the Children of Hurin. Um, he drops both of them and doesn't complete either one of them. It do, they both do lead indirectly to the resumption of the prose Silmarillion stuff um, when he comes back to doing prose discussions of the larger mythology and spelling that stuff out, um, it begins in 1926 as the sketch of the mythology explicitly background in order to understand the lay of the children of Hurin to to a reader that he was sending it to. Um, Then he takes that and he expands that into, in 1930, the Quenta Silmarillion, um, right around the time he's dropped the Lay of Lathian. Um, So we see it's sort of stimulating, it seems to be stimulating these other things, and then he ends up uh, setting the Lay of Lathian aside. What also does it lead to? What else? 1930? What else is going on in 1930? He's turning over an examination paper and writing, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit on the back. 1930 to 1933 is the time when he was working really heavily um, on The Hobbit. So um, that's another thing that I can't help but wonder if that also contributed very significantly to the dropping of the Lay of Lathian, in which case it's kind of hard to blame him for it, but still. 
we'll come back to some of that. I hope to get back to Hobbit stuff actually by the end of uh, the uh, the class tonight, because um, you know it's one of the real uh, sort of payoffs of reading the lays of Beleriand is you can begin to see the Hobbit in a completely different context. Um, because in a very real way, the Hobbit comes directly out of this stuff. It is these poems which sort of led up to the Hobbit. Not directly, not that they are the linear cause, or, you know, they're sort of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the direct cause of the Hobbit, exactly. Um, but it, the Hobbit is, in a sense, the heir of these poems, and we can see some things being incorporated in. You will, you should, uh, in today, in the reading for today's class, have uh, had a few Hobbit flashbacks. I hope, and we're going to touch on those uh, by the end of uh, by the end of class. I'm hoping that's a little optimistic. But anyway, <laughs> next class at the very latest. Um, Taking a peek for a second at the process of the evolution of the Turin story, because I want to make sure that we have clear in our minds there's so many different versions of the Turin story, I know it's really easy to, to, to get them all confused. So let me map that out really briefly, just to make sure that we all know how, that's, how that works and where the work that we're starting here tonight fits in that big picture. The story of Turin Turambar begins when Tolkien reads the Kalevala, the Finnish epic. Um, he loved the story of Kulervo, and the story of Kulervo is very similar to Turin Turambar's in, 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 in many ways. Uh, the, the foolish, headstrong, but enormously gifted youth who screws a bunch of things up and ends up marrying his sister by accident. Um, uh, anyway, so... Um, uh, so... Anyway, the story of Kulervo, uh, he loved the Kalevala in general, and, uh, uh, and the story of Kulervo he was especially interested. In fact, he went and rewrote his own version of the story of Kulervo. So it's just like Finnish fan fiction, right? Um, he sat down and wrote his own prose version of the story of Kulervo. That's the thing that's being released. If you've seen any notices of this, there's another Tolkien book being published uh, uh, later this year, and that is the story of Kulervo. Uh, edited by Mythgard's own Verlin Flieger, um, which uh, I'm really excited to see. That. She's released uh, uh, his version of that in, uh, uh, in uh, earlier on, but I'm really interested to see the whole apparatus. Anyways, okay, so he, he did his own version. He loved the story of Kulervo so much that he did his own version of it. And then he wrote the Turin story, which is clearly based on the story of Kulervo, though not exactly identical. Um, and the first full version of that is Turambar and the Foaloke, the one that we read together in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2. Um, from there, so that's the first full version of the Turin story, then we get this version, the lay of the, the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. After this, he comes back to the Turin story in the context of that prose Silmarillion material that I just talked about, the stuff that he wrote in 1926 and in 1930, the sketch of the mythology and the 1930 Quintus Silmarillion. Um, so again, he comes back to this in sort of... It's, it's, it's a very, very short version, um, but it's sort of a summary and overview of the Turin story, and we can see both his ideas about the Turin story developing and how it fits in with the larger picture, because the even the 1930 Quinta, which 
is uh, much longer than the 1926 sketch of the mythology. Um, but even there, of course, the version of the Turin story is very, very short because um, it's just a, it's just a, a, a relatively short thing. Later on, so now we're talking like 1930, jump forward a couple decades because then we have The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings happen. Um, after he has finished The Lord of the Rings, while The Lord of the Rings is being published in the 50s, he wrote a lot during that time. One of the things he wrote was the Narn Ihin Hurin, the longest prose version of the Turin Turambar story that survives. That's the one that's, that's published in Unfinished Tales. We read that together and talked about that last year uh, when we did Unfinished Tales. Um, so he comes back, does a long prose version of it, fleshes it out, adds lots and lots of stuff that we you know, had never gotten anywhere else in any other version of the story, especially a lot of details about Turin's childhood, um, which had been skipped over. And that one is a, that one is 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 a prose version. This version is the only uh, this alliterative version is the only extended poetic version um, of the of the Turin story. Then, of course, after that, we have the published Silmarillion, which is a compression. It's not a definitive version. It's a shorter version because it's designed to be not a full epic story on its own, but a chapter in a book, like the Book of Lost Tales, right? Um, so Christopher Tolkien sort of edits the story and Tolkien's final workings on it uh, and produces the story of, uh, you know, the the tale of Turin Turambar that we get in the published Silmarillion. Later on, in, what was it, 97, um, Christopher Tolkien publishes uh, The Children of Hurin, um, uh, which most of you will probably remember when that came out. Um, And this seems to be Christopher Tolkien's sort of apparent desire to fulfill Tolkien's wish to have this, you know, this wish that he got way back in like 1920 um, to see a sort of a full-length, um, full narrative version of just the Turin story. So he takes primarily the material from the Narn. That's uh, the, the 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 children. The recently published Children of Hurin contains comparatively little new material. Most of it is drawn uh, from the Narnihin Hurin. That's in. Um, uh, that's in uh, uh, the unfinished tales. Um, but uh, but anyway, it, it presents it in that freestanding novel form. Here's the, here's the story, uh, the story of Turin, the, the story of the children of Hurin. So okay, so that's the overall big picture, just so that you know where all of these where all of these things fit in and where they come. Um, in our discussion of the poem, as I said, I want to be focusing mostly on this poem on its own terms. Christopher Tolkien does a great job in his notes, if you read his notes, does a wonderful job, as usual, of showing the similarities and differences, comparing this version to the Book of Lost Tales version, uh, uh, making some references forward uh, to the Narn from un- in, published in Unfinished Tales, and to the published Silmarillion. Um, so, you know, you, you, you can get a really good kind of summary of the changes and how this fits in and where we can see that progressing. Really interesting stuff. Some really fascinating stuff to talk about. Um, but I don't want to just kind of rehash that. I want to be doing, to kind of go beyond that in a sense and look at the story as Tolkien is trying to present it. Not just looking at similarities and differences, but really thinking about this story as it's presented. So, okay. And just to review, Erica was asking me to review quickly. Tonight's reading, this was written in the first half of the 20s. So it was written from probably 1918, at least as early as 1918, up to 1925. Okay? Um, And uh, other than the short poems that he wrote, which, as I said, were quite a few uh, during that period, 
um, there were fewer other things that he produced during that time. Um, so the, this uh, seems clearly to have occupied him quite a bit. Um, and certainly doing this kind of alliterative verse certainly took some doing. So let's talk about alliterative verse a little bit. Let's look at how it works. I want to start off with something familiar, uh, something that you will all have seen, just to do an illustration of how, you know, a sort of a basic alliterative meter 101, so that you know how this works. Arise now, arise, riders of Theoden, dire deeds awake, dark is it eastward, let horse be bridled, horn be sounded, forth, Aorlingas. This is, of course, Theoden, you all know where this happens. Um, so, how alliterative verse works. The first thing to know about alliterative verse is that it is not a syllabic verse. That is, it's not like, it's not, it is not in a regular metrical pattern by syllables. Okay? There's not a set number of syllables per line. You should not be looking for alternating stresses and unstressed syllables like you get when you're doing iambic poetry. Um, the one that's in my head, because we just talked about it in the poetry class, um, and one of my favorite examples of iams anyway, uh, you know, uh, and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel. Um, thinking of Amroth in, in the Nimrodel poem. Um, the Nimrodel poem is just gorgeously smooth iambic, basically iambic heptameter, essentially. Um, though it's not presented that way in the text. But, um, but anyway, it's it's iambic. It's very smooth. Unstressed, stressed. Unstressed, stressed. Bum 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 bum. Um, alliterative poetry doesn't work that way. There can be. Um, it's not not an infinite number of syllables. Uh, there are sort of general codes, but you shouldn't be counting symbols. You shouldn't be looking for that kind of a rhythm and beat. Instead, the way it works is there are four main beats. Four main um, uh, yeah beats uh, per line. Arise now, arise, riders of Theoden. Arise, arise, riders, Theoden. Four primary beats. Um, and it's generally divided into half lines with a sejura, a little pause in the middle. Arise now, arise, riders of Theoden. Dark deeds awake, dark is it eastward. Let horse be bridled, horn be sounded. You see how Tolkien has structured even syntactically these lines to reflect that sejura in the middle. That's why we get those commas in the middle of every line, because he's uh, sort of prompting the reader to do the sejura where it's supposed to be. Now, on those four beats, two on either side of the sejura, uh, the primary function, of course, of alliterative poetry is the alliteration. It doesn't rhyme at the end of the line, um, certainly not an Anglo-Saxon, though a few adventurous uh, Middle English uh, poets, such as the Sir Gawain poet, incorporated some elements of rhyme as well, especially in poems like, uh, in, 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 in the poem Pearl, um, but even in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. But anyway, in Anglo-Saxon, um, there's, there, there's no rhyme involved. Alliteration is the force of the poem. And, ha- and the general rule, the, 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 the most basic way of thinking of the rules of Anglo-Saxon alliteration are these. You have to have at least two or three almost never four, um, alliterative, so on those four beats, so of those four beats, two or three of them must alliterate. The third beat, the first beat after the sejura, is sort of the prime alliterative one. The alliteration always kind of hinges on that third beat. So either the first and the second beat, or both, will alliterate with the third beat. The fourth beat doesn't alliterate, as a general rule. Um, 
if there is alliteration on the fourth beat, it's a bending of the rules. It's not really supposed to work that way. Um, the third beat always alliterates the fourth beat. You mostly never alliterates. It can be either the first or the second or both. Okay, so we see here. Now notice uh, a couple other things. Um, arise now, arise, riders of Theoden. Uh, when you have a word which has a sort of a prefix like arise, right, um, you'd think, well, hey, that's an A. That doesn't alliterate with riders. Yes, it does. Um, because the primary emphasis is on that R sound. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden. That alliterates perfectly well. Ignore the A. It's not stressed anyway, so it's fine. That kind of thing often happens in alliterative verse. Because again, don't you're not looking at the stop looking at the page, right? Uh, you know, uh, um, Yana, you were asking, do I have an opinion? Should you read it aloud or should you read it silently? Heck, I'd keep you from reading it at all if I could. Uh, if there were an audio version, I would say you know, shut the book and just listen to it, because that's how it's supposed to be consumed. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, it's it's only with your eyes looking at that first line that you'd be like, hey, it's A, so it doesn't match with it. If, we, if you listen to it, arise, arise, riders of Theoden, obviously it alliterates, right? No issue there. The other rule to remember, it's not illustrated here in, uh, in this particular verse, um, but vowels, all vowels alliterate with any other vowel, so uh, it's fine. E's, A's, O's—they're—they're all—they're all good. So those all count as uh, as alliterative sounds for the purposes of alliterative verse. It's comparatively unusual to alliterate on the vowel, um, uh, and, and so that was kind of a kind of a, 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 a grab bag in that way. Um, now the sort of the effect of alliteration um, the effect of alliteration necessarily is to draw the listener's attention to particular words in the line I, I cannot hear alliterative poetry without paying at least a little bit more attention to those alliterate to those alliterated words than I do to the others um, it's and so therefore a, a thoughtful and interesting alliterative poet will make use of that. Um, look at how this works in this little version here, right? Um, we have Arise, Arise, Riders of Theoden. So we have, you know, the the, uh, the the target of the action reflecting the action that's been, the, the command that's been given, right? Arise, Arise, Riders. Uh, in the second line, Dark Deeds Awake. Dark is it eastward. Um, the 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 dark, which is the pivotal alliterative moment in that line, is already anticipated by dire deeds awake. Why do dire deeds awake? Because dark is it eastward. Um, so, again, that, those three words hitting our ears hard in that line uh, really brings home that really simple connection, right? Dire de Why do dire deeds awake? Because dark is it eastward. Now, the third line is really cool. Let horse be bridled horn be sounded. Horse and horn are the two alliterative words in that line. Um, these, are the th uh, the, these are the things that we're, you know, we're, we're getting ready our horses and we're going to sound, and, you know, that's a, a good sequence, right? Get your horse ready first, then sound your horn and off you go, right? Um, but look at how the parallelism within this line uh, is really emphasized by that alliteration, right? Let horse be bridled, horn be sounded, forth. Eorlingas. Um, 
So anyway, there are lots of really fun things that can be done with the structure, and we'll we'll be finding some fun examples as we go through. Um, uh, and uh, what this uh, what this little verse doesn't give is the sense of the kind of rolling momentum that alliterative verse uh, can have and can give. Uh, and we'll see a bunch of examples of this. So, okay. With that in mind, now that we're fully halfway through the class, let's start talking about the poem. Um, but I, you know, before you all start teasing me about how few slides I've gotten through tonight uh, so far, it's only fair, right? We're, this is the introduction to a whole new book and a book that most people haven't read before, so, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, obviously, totally different situation from normal. Um, okay, remember, we've just wandered into a, uh, a particular upper crust bookseller, and we are, uh, you know, we're not pulling this off the, uh, off the Pulp Fiction stand, um. But anyway, we've gone into a, a, a reputable bookseller, and we've pulled this book off the shelf, and it's called The Lay of the Children of Hurin, uh, and we open it up to page one, and this is what we read. Lo, the golden dragon of the god of hell, the gloom of the woods, of the world now gone, the woes of men, and weeping of elves, fading faintly down forest pathways, is now to tell, and the name most tearful, of Niniel the sorrowful, and the name most sad, of Thalian's son Turin, overthrown by fate. Lo, Hurin Thalion in the hosts of war was whelmed, what time the white-clad armies of Elphines were all to ruin, by the dread hate driven of Delu Morgoth. That field is yet by the folk named Ninin Unothradin, unnumbered tears. There the children of men, chieftain and warrior, fled and fought not, but the folk of the elves they betrayed with treason, save that true man only, Thalion Erethamrod, and his thanes like gods. Okay, so um, what kind of a book are we reading? The first word, of course, is low. That's no coincidence. Um, low is the modern English word that Tolkien uses, sort of modern English word that Tolkien uses to translate the Anglo-Saxon "wat," which is, of course, the way you're supposed to start an Anglo-Saxon poem. Lots of people have lots of different ideas about what exactly the word "wat" uh, indicated. Uh, in uh, in in Anglo-Saxon verse, but anyway, uh, it's no, that's why he starts with low because that's 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 what. Anyway, what do we get? What do we get? Epic poetry, yes, um, definitely. It has the epic beginning. Um, what's this poem about? Look at those first seven lines again. What's this poem about? We're getting a uh, we're getting a, 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 yeah, Arthur. We're getting a lot of spoilers. Right uh, up front, um, what do we learn fr- about the story from these seven lines? Lo, the golden dragon of the god of hell, the gloom of the woods of the world now gone, the woes of men and weeping of elves, fading faintly down forest pathways, is now to tell. Hey, a verb! We finally got the main verb. That's very common, by the way. Anglo-Saxon tends to push its verbs towards the end, uh, so you'll you'll see that kind of thing a lot. Um, is now to tell. That's the that's that's the the is is the main verb of this sentence. Those seven lines are one sentence, right? So, the what we began with is the list of things that we're going to talk about: the golden dragon of the god of hell, the gloom of the woods of the world now gone, the woes of men, 
Weeping of Elves, Fading Faintly Down Forest Pathways. That's what we're going to talk about. Oh, and, and some more things. The name most tearful of Nemiel the Sorrowful, and the name most sad of Thalion's son Turin, or Throne by Fate. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. That's what is now to tell here in this poem. What are we getting? Yeah, sadness and loss, Michael Chevskowski, absolutely. Um, it's... Um, it's uh, we're getting a tragedy, absolutely, Sharon. That's a great way to say it. Um, uh, it sounds like a tragedy to me. <laughs> yep, yep. Don't expect a happy ending. We are being told here at the beginning, and this is interesting. Like, notice it's not. In one sense, it's not giving us spoilers. That is, it doesn't tell us anything other than ultimately where the story is headed, <laughs> right? It tells us that Turin is going to be overthrown by fate, that uh, Niniel the Sorrowful is the name most tearful, so she's probably not going to end well either. Um, the woes of men, the weeping of elves, uh, the gloom of the woods, um, and there's a dragon. Um, and it's the dragon of the god of hell, and that sounds bad. Uh, so, so, yeah, tragedy. So notice, in a sense, then, what we're doing is sort of announcing the genre, right? He's setting our expectations. This is the kind of thing that this poem is going to be about. This is that. This is going to be that kind of story. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tobias says, hey, Tobias. Uh, Tobias says that uh, it's something of a really sad trailer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely it is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, but now where do we start? So now we're going to begin the actual action, right? Lo, Hurin Thalion in the hosts of war was whelmed, what time the white-clad armies of Elfiness were all to ruin by the dread hate driven of Delu Morgoth. Again, notice that syntactical structure. You get adjusted to that as you read through. You get used to waiting for the verb. Um, Hurin Thalion was whelmed in the hosts of war, at what time the white-clad armies of Elfinus were all driven to ruin by the dread of Delu Morgoth, right? Um, were all to ruin by the dread hate driven of Delu Morgoth. Um, okay, so... Okay, so when the white... When the, so we have this... We're, apparently there are a bunch of elves, and their armies were destroyed by a bad guy... Uh, named Delu Morgoth um, and Hurin Thalion whatever that means was overwhelmed yeah, Kurita says we start with defeat and it gets worse from there uh, yeah, yeah, exactly um, yeah, yeah um, okay, that field is yet by the folk named Ninin Unothradin unnumbered tears there the children of men, chieftain and warrior, fled and fought not, but the folk of the elves they betrayed with treason, save that true man only, Thalion Erethamrod, and his thanes like gods. Okay, and the men were awful. Um, yeah, Karita, you can tell that Delu Morgoth is the, is the bad guy, because his name sounds so evil. Tolkien was wonderful at that. Uh, and yes, absolutely. Um, uh, so we have a hero, right? He's a tragic hero. 
in fact, he's a very northern tragic hero. I mean, this image that we begin with of the great warrior, Hurin Thalion, the one true man. All of the rest of the men betrayed the elves, but one man stayed true. Hurin Thalion, Thalion Erethamrod. We don't need to know what those names mean to know that he was... Look how many names he's gotten. He's obviously great. Right? He's being given all these nicknames. He's clearly known to many people by many names. Uh, names have, and sort of titles of praise have been heaped upon him because he was so awesome, and his thanes, like gods, uh, were surrounded and destroyed. Um, so they lost and stuff, but it was awesome when they lost. I mean, they lost in the most awesome possible way, and they stayed faithful. Um, notice how, by the way, betrayed alliterates with treason and true. Right? They betrayed with treason, save that true man only. See what Tolkien does there? Right? Betrayed and treason in the first half of the line, true man in the second half of the line. Right? So you've got that, that sort of counterpoint, which is emphasized through the connection established by the alliteration. Um, okay, so um, uh, notice, by the way, um, that this image of Hurin alone standing true in the midst of battle, um, uh, him being overwhelmed uh, uh, by ruin in the midst of the battle seems also a bit of foreshadowing of Turin and his fate. Um, and uh, several, I think, Nancy, you were talking about this earlier. Uh, Nancy was asking, are we supposed to have some kind of uh, some kind of knowledge, you know, advanced knowledge of this? Because there seems to be a lot of this kind of foreshadowing, which you can really only get uh, if you know the... Uh, um, uh, uh, if you know the story. Um, no, I, I don't think he would have been assuming that people knew the story, um, but that kind, of, that kind of foreshadowing, that kind of dramatic irony works really well. I mean, um, this is not the kind of work that you pick up off the Pulp Fiction shelf, read once on the airplane, and throw away afterwards. Uh, alliterative epic poems... Are poems, if you're going to read, you need to read them and reread them in order to get them. So uh, that seems to be the kind of presumption that he's written under that, you know, when you read it the second time, you will see much more in it than you saw when you read the first time. And one of the things which seems to be implied, Hurin, as, be, you know, this is the story of Turin, right? Um, and we're being introduced to his father here. Um, so the at least potential foreshadowing of Turin's fate in Hurin's here at the beginning is actually quite a nice way to think about Turin's career. If he is going to be overthrown by fate, as we're told in line 7, and then we immediately shift to Hurin being whelmed uh, uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears... Um, uh, th there seems to be there seems to be a parallel there, but again, it puts Turin in a really good light, right? Um, gosh, it makes Turin almost sound like an elf friend, doesn't it? Maybe like, maybe like one of the greatest of all the elf friends ever. Like he'd make the top three list if that were the case, right? Um, I'm of course referring to Elrond and his famous and from the point of view of the published Silmarillion, somewhat dubious pronouncement uh, that uh, Hurin, Turin, and Baron are the three, you know, he lists those three off the top of his head as the great Elfrens of old. Um, from the published Silmarillion, you might ask, what did Turin do to earn that uh, uh, that descriptor? Um, it um, It seems that 
in these earlier works, maybe we can kind of see that a little bit more. Um, yeah, Erica, I agree with you in general that there seems to be more emphasis on fate as a force in Turin's life rather than Turin's choices. Turin still makes some bonehead choices here, and we'll look at some of those, but I agree. Um, the narrator of this poem comes back to emphasize the active role of fate um, very frequently, I think. Um, okay, but let's think about... Let's think about... Uh, oh, no, I don't think about Turin yet. Let's look at Hurin and Morgoth, and let's continue with our... Uh, uh, with our introductory sequence here. Um, Morgoth is talking to Hurin here, right? Just ask him if he knows where he is and what's going on. I know and I hate, for that knowledge I fought thee by fear unfettered, nor fear I now, said Thalion there, and a thane of Morgoth on the mouth smote him, but Morgoth smiled. Fear when thou feelest, and the flames lick thee, and the whips of the balrogs thy white flesh brand. Yet away canst win, and thou wishest, still to lessen thy lot of lingering woe. Go question the captives of the accursed people. I have taken, and tell me where Turgon is hid, how with fire and death I may find him soon, where he lurketh lost in lands forgot. Thou must feign thee a friend, faithful in anguish, and their inmost hearts thus open and search. Then, if truth thou tellest, thy triple bonds I will bid men unbind, that abroad thou fare, in my service to search the secret places, following the footsteps of those foes of the gods. Okay. What do we see in this exchange between Hurin and Morgoth? What do we learn about Morgoth? And what do we learn about the situation? Again, how are we being set up for the Turin story by seeing what his great and obviously heroic father, Hurin, whom we've begun the poem with, does? <laughs> uh, Sarah King says that Morgoth is desperately trying to learn the location of the secret rebel base. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Laurel, he does really need a spy. Um, note that Morgoth's interests in Hurin are purely practical, and his focus is on Turgon and Gondolin. Turgon and Gondolin, and we looked at this back when we did The Fall of Gondolin in The Book of Lost Tales Part 2. In the earlier versions of the story, Turgon had a much bigger role to play, at least potentially, if not actually, in the downfall of Morgoth. Um, so... Morgoth is right to be afraid. He is actually afraid of Turgon, and he's right to be afraid of Turgon. Um, so it's all about Turgon for Morgoth uh, in these earlier stories, and we can see that here, right? He's not concerned. It's a, that yeah, he won a huge victory. He slaughtered the elf armies at uh, you know at this battle, which is called Unnumbered Tears. But the thing failed. Right, he's disappointed because Turgon escaped, and that was the main thing he was hoping to accomplish. So, um, uh, he, uh, um, so he's trying to get again a very practical. Per he's trying to use uh, Hurin as a spy. Right, he is trying to induce Hurin to betray the elves. This, of course, picks up on what we were told at the beginning of the poem, how all of the humans betrayed the elves. Hurin alone remained steadfast, which is, of course, what Thalion means. Hurin the steadfast. Hurin Thalion. Um, 
he alone has remained steadfast. So we see Hurin simply remaining true, uh, remaining steadfast even after he is captured and in the face of torture. Um, notice that Morgoth isn't bothered by Hurin's defiance here. Um, you know, uh, Hurin says, I fought thee by fear unfettered, nor fear I now. And I, I, I was not afraid to come and fight you in battle. I'm still not afraid of you even now that I've been captured. And Morgoth doesn't get mad about that, right? He just smiles and says, Oh, I think you will, uh, you'll start being afraid uh, when we start burning you. Right, once I let the Balrogs uh, start on you with with their whips, I think there will be some fear at that point, right? Um, and uh, so he's not he's not he's not concerned. He's offering Hurin a way out. At least that's what he says. He's offering Hurin a way out. Um, and um, yeah, oh, Nancy asks why, or no, Sarah King was asking uh, why does Morgoth call. Uh, the elves of Gondolin, presumably the foes of the gods there, you know, in my service to search the secret places following the footsteps of these foes of the gods. Um, which gods except himself? Oh, well, the gods of Valinor, they're rebels, right? They're, 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 they're Noldoli, uh, who have rebelled against the gods. So, but you notice how you see how he's trying to spin that, right? Um, into, into saying, hey, it's not a, it's no bad thing, right? In fact, you'd, you'd totally be doing the right thing to rat out uh, the Gondolindrum because, you know, they're the foes of the gods, right? Um, so that's... So, Sarah, I take that as a piece of persuasion. He's not just threatening, right? He's not just saying, I am the bad guy. I want you to betray your good allies to me, the bad guy, and like it. Right? He's not saying that. He's actually trying to deceive, to manipulate um, Hurin here a little bit, but of course... Hurin is really having none of it. Um, Sharon says, Thalion's uh, first uh, words are two lines with the same alliterative sound. Yeah, well, notice uh, in line in the first line, the alliteration is actually on the N sound. I know and I hate for that knowledge I fought thee. It's the, it's the know and knowledge that alliterate. But notice how he does transition. Tolkien does this quite a bit, actually. The F is going to be the alliterative sound in the next line. So the fourth beat of the first line is an F. I know and I hate for that knowledge I fought thee. And the F, of course, doesn't alliterate with the rest of that line, because it's not supposed to, but it does uh, serve as sort of the alliterative trigger for the following line. I fought thee by fear unfettered, nor fear I now. Um, it's a, As I said, that's a, that's a little uh, alliterative technique that Tolkien uses on, on a bunch of occasions. Uh, notice uh, it's right there again down in line 71. Um, then if truth thou tellest thy triple bonds, I will bid men unbind that abroad thou fare. Um, bonds bid unbind abroad. Um, he doesn't always do it, but but uh, but you can see that uh, you can see that fairly often, and it's kind of cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good, yeah, Karita says he's manipulating him by telling the truth, which is a great tactic in deception. Yes, exactly. Um, now look at the next bit. So Hurin defies him again. Boldly thou bravest me, be thy boast rewarded. In mirth, quod Morgoth, to me now the deeds, and thy aid I ask not. But anger thee not, if little they like thee. 
Yea, look thereon, helpless to hinder, or thy hand to raise. Then Thalion was thrust to Thangorodrim, that mountain that meets the misty skies, on high o'er the hills that Hithlam sees, blackly brooding on the borders of the north. To a stool of stone on its steepest peak they bound him in bonds, an unbreakable chain, and the lord of woe there laughing stood, then cursed him forever, and his kin in seed with a doom of dread, of death and horror. There the mighty man unmoved sat, but veiled was his vision, and he view that he viewed afar all earthly things, with eyes enchanted that fell on his folk, a fiend's torment. Hurin refuses first threats, right? He's threatened with torture if he won't betray the elves, and he says, I don't care, he says actually torture will be pleasant compared to the stain of treachery, right? Um, and then Morgoth tries bribery, and that doesn't work either, right? And he continues to defy him. Morgoth, notice, still doesn't seem upset, right? Um, he uh, He's still in mirth speaking, Right, boldly thou bravest me, be thy boast rewarded. He's laughing at Hurin still. Um, we don't see him getting offended. We don't see any kind of theological discussion between them. If you're familiar with the later versions, especially the version that's in the Narn and reproduced in the Children of Hurin, um, you'll. I mean, they have a you know. Morgoth is sort of demanding worship uh, from Hurin. In fact, there's a, uh, there's an active parallel, I was arguing, in the Unfinished Tales class um, with the temptation of Christ. Uh, Morgoth takes Hurin up on the mountain like the devil and sort of shows him the... I mean, it's, 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 again, it's not the same situation, but it's, but it's almost like that. He's insisting that Hurin falls down and worships him, and Hurin won't do it. Um, there is an explicitly theological element to this, and Morgoth is furious at Hurin's denial and uh, and at the 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 rejection, the nature of the, not just the fact of it, but the, the 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 kind of rejection that he gives him. It's not what's going on here, right? Hurin is being leaned on, like any bad guy who has captured one of his enemies might lean on him to try to get something out of him, try to threaten or bribe him into into serving him and and uh, you know exploiting him in order to 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 get at the rest of his foes who escaped. But having not done that, you know, having not succeeded in that, he's just going to, it seems, punish Hurin out of spite. Um, not in wrath, but out of spite. Be thy boast rewarded. He says, okay, you want to defy me? Fine, fine. Um, to me now the deeds, and thy aid I ask not. Right, okay, fine, you're not going to help me? Fine, I'll do it myself, Right. But uh, don't be angry if you don't like what I do, right? I gave you the chance to contribute in your own way. You won't do it. I'm going to take over, and you're probably not going to like it. Look, watch it happen. I'm going to condemn you to watch again, helpless to hinder or thy hand to raise. You, the great hero, the great man of deeds, I am going to make you helpless and helpless, helplessly watch what's going to, what I am going to do. It's a terrible curse. And he's thrust up onto the mountain, and he's put on his stool of stone on its steepest peak, 
and cursed him forever and his kin and seed with a doom of dread, of death and horror. Not just death. You know, they're mortal. That's going to happen anyway. But death and horror. There the mighty man unmoved sat, but unveiled was his vision, that he viewed afar all earthly things with eyes enchanted that fell on his folk a fiend's torment. Um, His eyes are enchanted. It's unclear to me exactly what that means. It sounds like they are enchanted to enable him just to see things from far away. One question is, does he see things as they really are? In the published Silmarillion, there are all those implications. I'm thinking, of course, of Melian's words to Hurin when he comes before Melian and Thingol in Doriath. Uh, Melian's implication that he who sees with Morgoth's eyes sees all things crooked. Um, is Morgoth warping what he sees? That's not explicitly said. It's just said here that he is shown everything and allowed to see things. Um, uh, yeah, Sarah King says it seems almost worse to her than in other versions. If Hurin doesn't mean much to Morgoth, and Morgoth, is, Morgoth isn't even angry, it's more like a kind of casual cruelty. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Laurel, I agree, he cannot look away, he can't close his eyes to his people. And again, there's that, there's the, sort of the terrible, bitter irony of this curse, right? He He would certainly want to know what becomes of his people, of his family, um, but he is cursed with the inability to look away from what Morgoth is going to do to his family. Um, again, the great, the, one of the greatest of all human warriors is going to be rendered helpless. Uh, and that's horrible, right? Just, 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 just horrible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Tom Hillman says, Morgoth already sees everything crooked, so one seeing with his eyes must see things that way. Yeah, exactly. Though, it's, again, it's not it's not explicit in this version that he's looking with Morgoth's eyes, right? Um, his eyes are enchanted, um, and, but again, it, from the context, it seems that they're enchanted only in the sense that they enable him to view things from afar. Um, and he's able to see all earthly things with eyes enchanted. So that seems to be... It might be more than that, but it's not explicit that it's definitely more than that. Um, okay, so what's he going to see? What's going to happen to Turin? How is this curse, which is pretty vague, right? Um, he cursed him forever in his kin and seed with a doom of dread of death and horror. Okay. Again, relatively vague, Right? And we'll uh, we'll see uh, we'll see how that we'll see how that plays out. All right, let's look at Turin. First, I want to jump ahead and look at Turin's character. Basically, if Turin is our is our tragic hero in this tragedy, uh, you know that we're looking at Hurin. We get Hurin here at the beginning, but he's not our primary hero. Of course, his son Turin is. What's Turin like? What do we get about Turin in this poem? Um, what's his character? Okay. So this is while he's in uh, Doriath, of course. There he waxed wonderly, and won him praise in all lands where Thingol as lord was held, for the strength of his body and stoutness of heart. Much lore he learned, and loved wisdom, but fortune followed him in few desires. Oft wrong and awry what he wrought turned. What he loved he lost, what he longed for he won not, and full friendship he found not easily, nor was lightly loved, for his looks were sad. 
He was gloom-hearted and glad seldom for the sundering sorrow that seared his youth. On manhood's threshold he was mighty holden in the wielding of weapons, and in weaving song he had a minstrel's mastery, but mirth was not in it, for he mourned the misery of the men of Hithlam. All right, what do we learn about Turin? Turin in his uh, in his life. Good, Carita says that no emphasis on what a fabulously beautiful hunk of a man he is. Yes, Silmarillion tells us he's the most gorgeous human man who ever lived. We don't get that emphasized. The strength of his body is emphasized. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we don't get his beauty emphasized, which is interesting. Um, yeah. Good. What else? What else? Um, yeah, good. There is um, both Tom uh, Hillen and Nancy Fosberg are pointing out how this is a that you you are correctly remembering the passage in the uh, the Book of Lost Tales version where we get very so he's following that fairly closely um but there is i agree nancy there is a little there there is more here uh on his on his uh his condition um he is sad now what does that mean we should be careful with this the word sad um is uh doesn't have the same meaning in its archaic form that it does in modern form. Um, I was about to say sad doesn't mean the opposite of happy, um, which is true, but the word happy didn't mean what it means now either. Both of those terms, sad and happy, uh, don't mean then what they mean, what they mean now. Um, very good. Um, Carita, Laurel, and Sarah King, all correct. Serious is what it means. Um, uh, sober. Um, you're sad if you don't laugh and smile a whole lot. It doesn't mean you're feeling, you know, tearful and, you know, frowny face. It just means you're solemn. Um, I, so, yeah, to, to say something like, um, um, why the sad face just means, why so serious? Um, happy, of course. What does happy mean? It's not used that here, but uh, what does happy mean? Doesn't mean cheerful, lucky, fortunate, having good hap. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, so if you say that was a happy chance, it means it was a lucky chance. Okay, so um, his looks are sad. He's a very serious young man. Um, this is, you know, this passage comes from the time when he's a teenager in Doriath, right? He's growing up. Um, it's at the age of 19 when he, uh, uh, you know, throws his drinking horn in Orgoff's face and kills him accidentally. Um, so it's, it's the time, uh, it's the time before that. Um, so, okay, good. What else? What else do we learn about him? More things that lots of observations to make here. I want I want to hear uh, more of them. So he is he is sad. He's glad seldom. Glad is the word the modern word for happy. That's that glad is the the older word that meant basically that. He's he's seldom that, um, but he's gloom hearted. What else? Let's focus on the good things. What's good about Turin? 
What are we told that's good about him? Lots, right? Lots that's good about him. Yeah, much lore he learned and loved wisdom, Laurel. Absolutely. He doesn't just... Uh, he, it, it's not just that he's uh, that he was taught a lot, right? He was forced to sit through a lot of classes. He loves wisdom, right? So he loves to learn things. Um, he's not just all about the physical prowess. He's not dumb. Um, he loved wisdom and learned lore. Um, he was uh, uh, held as a lord for the strength of his body and stoutness of heart, both good things, right? The strength of his body and the stoutness of his heart. Um, uh, what else? The There's one thing which is unique to this version of the story. Yes, good. Erica and Tom have it. Uh, his singing. He had a minstrel's mastery. Uh, in in the wielding in weaving song, he had a he had a minstrel's mastery, but mirth was not in it. Um, that's I get that that's unique. That's never said about Turin elsewhere. So we see Turin as, um, uh, as a poet, as a singer, but not a singer of happy poems, not of mirthful poems, for he mourned the misery of the men of Hithlam. So he would have written poems like, uh, like um, uh, this one, <laughs> right? Uh, poems that start off kind of like those first seven lines of this one start. This is the kind of poem that Turin sings. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, of course, we get the bad thing. So he's he mourns for the misery of the men of Hithlam. He's not just gloomy, right? He's not just uh, uh, you know he he's not just always looking at the 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 downside of things. His looks are serious, and he's gloom hearted for the sundering sorrow that seared his youth. He can't forget the loss of his childhood because it's not just like his mother died, right? Um, it's that he was separated from he. She is still alive and in trouble, perhaps somewhere, and his people enslaved and um, and him removed, and he can't do anything or even now know anything. After the first seven years, he doesn't even know anything. So for for like five years now, he's heard no news uh, from his land and his mother. So he's very serious and he's preoccupied with his people and mourning their misery. That's kind of admirable, actually. Um, you know, so it's not just like he's a real downer, man. You know, it's it's not just that he's uh, sort of sad and depressing to be around. Uh, he is sort of appropriately somber. He is a, a man in exile, and he is being brought up in in comfort um, while his mother and sister and possibly all of his people are, you know, have, have maybe they've all been killed, maybe they've been all, you know, taken as slaves... Um, he thinks about that a lot. And good for him that he thinks about that a lot. It'd be a lot worse if he just became the kind of fop that carries around gold combs, right? Uh, and were really focused on superficial things and his own ease and comfort. That would be kind of despicable. He's not that, right? Um, in the midst of luxury, in the midst of splendor, he, in the midst of mirth, he remains sad, and gloom-hearted, and mourning the misery of others. His heart is full of pity. Not self-pity, 
but pity for others. And that seems to me a really important thing. We don't get a glimpse here of self-pity. He's gloom-hearted for the sundering sorrow that seared his youth, which makes it sound like it is his own personal sorrow that's at the root of it. But again, we see, uh, we see that this, you know, the, the, the business about the songs that he makes seems to me a really important addition to that line then. Because again, it's not, he's not just someone who makes emo songs about himself, right? I am so miserable and my life is so hard. That's not what he sings, right? He, sing, he makes songs about, the, 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 about his people. Um, yeah, and good. Eric, as you say, and then as soon as he can, he goes out and fights the enemies of his people. Um, so he doesn't just sit in isolation far away and do nothing. He does what he can, which is not much, and he can't get back there, but he does something. Um, good, good. But of course we see him thwarted, right? Um, and this is what several of you were wanting to point to before. Fortune followed him in few desires. Oft wrong and awry what he wrought, turn it. He does, it's not that he does bad things, but everything that he tries to do, or often things that he tried to do, turn out wrong. Um, and what he loved, he lost. What he longed for, he won not. He is disappointed. Um, but again, that's not what he sings about, right? Um, he doesn't find full friendship easily because he's so serious and because he is, in that sense, out of step with the people around him. The people of Doriath are sheltered. They didn't go to the battle. They didn't lose their people at, you know, in the unnumbered tiers. They've heard about it, right? They're defending their borders, but they've not been touched themselves by that sorrow. He is the only refugee of war in the midst of this yet peaceful realm. Um, he uh, doesn't have so much in common with uh, his uh, his his peers, right? Uh, with his age group. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Sarah Lagarde says he does seem grim, as Strider was grim in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, not quite in the same way as Bard is grim in the Hobbit. I mean, there's there's kind of a similarity. Uh, Bard could also certainly be described as sad. He's a pretty serious guy, not real mirthful. Um, but uh, but it's not that uh, you know. With Bard, we get him associated with actual gloomy predictions, you know, poison fish and whatnot. Um, even though people know his worth and his courage. Um, but Sarah, yeah, Aragorn is grim, right? Because he knows what is out there. He knows what needs to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brianna, Brianna's right. Um, Brianna says it's interesting how Tolkien later has Beleg be one of the few at that battle, and it's Beleg who can bridge that divide and be friends with Turin. Yeah, now of course in this version Beleg wasn't at the battle. He's heard of it, but he wasn't there, right? Um, he has compassion for Turin. He shows pity for Turin, and more than pity, respect. Um, but yes, Brianna, it is Beleg that is able to bridge that. Um, he, he doesn't find full friendship easily, but he does find it, right? Or rather, it seems, it finds him. Um, uh, <laughs> Carita says, freaking elves with their happy songs and cheery outlook and golden combs and nights of wine drinking, he probably feels out of place. 
Yeah, Karita, you know, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. You know, think about the, the mirth not being in the songs. Um, you have any idea what a song with mirth in it sounds like? What What's what's an example of the kind of song that Turin doesn't sing, do you think? Tra-la-la-lally. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, um, heave, ho, splash, plump, down they go, down they bump. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the kind of songs that elves sing. Okay? Um, and we have to reconcile ourselves to this fact. Uh, uh, that's, that's exactly the kind of things. Um, um, he doesn't, Turin doesn't do tra la la right? That's not the kind of song he sings. Uh, he sings, uh, you know, things like, uh, uh, Lo, Hurin Thalion in the hosts of war was whelmed, what time the white-clad armies of Elfiness were all to ruin by the dread hate driven of Delu Morgoth. That's the kind of thing uh, that Turin sings, not Tralalalali down in the valley. Um, okay, more about Turin. So after this, um, after, yeah, Karina says that's, that's a good t-shirt idea. I don't do Tralalalali. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, let's look at his prowess, because of course this is a very important element of his of his character, and we see this comes in very soon after that description. To assuage his sorrow, so in this situation, how does he respond? What choice does Turin himself make under these circumstances? To assuage his sorrow and to sate the rage and hate of his heart for the hurts of his folk, then Hurin's son took the helm of his sire, and weapons weighty for the wielding of men, and went into the woods with warlike elves, and far in the fight his feet led him, into black battle, yet a boy in years. Ere manhood's measure he met and slew the orcs of Angband and evil things that roamed and ravened on the realm's borders. There hard his life, and hurts he got him, the wounds of shaft and war-feigned sword, and his prowess was proven, and his praise renowned, and beyond his years he was yielded honor, for by him was holden the hand of ruin from Thingol's folk, and Thu feared him, Thu, who was throned as Thane most mighty near Morgoth Bauglir, whom that mighty one bade go ravage the realm of the robber Thingol, and mar the magic of Melian the queen." Um, okay. Let's not forget Thu, right? Thu is going to be important, a central figure in the Lay of Lathian later on. Uh, of course, Thu, Thu's name later on, he won't always be called Thu. His name will later be changed to Sauron, indeed, yes. Sauron himself was afraid of Turin. Um, Sauron was assigned, Thu was assigned by Morgoth, uh, the most mighty of the thanes of Morgoth, to, to, to destroy Doriath. Ravage the realm of Thingol and mar the magic of Melian the Queen. Um, yeah, yeah. Jan asks, is, is he the only one who misses Tevildo, Prince of Cats? Yeah, probably. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just kidding, Yana. Tevildo, Prince of Cats is awesome. But I kind of like Thu better. At least as a villain, he works better. He's a little scarier than Tevildo, Prince of Cats, was. Tevildo was hilarious. Granted, Nancy, totally agree. But, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> Brianna says even Sauron is now a dog person instead of a cat person. Literally a cat person uh, before. Absolutely. Okay, all right. Um, so his choice. He feels hate in his heart for the hurts of his folk. Uh, 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 he's got a lot of anger built up, Turin does. Uh, right? So how does he channel it? Music, for one thing. And warfare, right? He still a boy in years takes up the helm of his sire, so we see him uh, sort of filling the role of Hurin, fighting alongside the elves, the one man fighting alongside the elves, just like Hurin uh, at Unnumbered Tears, uh, and here is to accept he's doing what Hurin couldn't do, or didn't do. He is, through his presence, single-handedly turning the tide. Notice, that's a really... that's a really important line, right? Um, where is it? Uh, For by him was holding the hand of ruin from Thingol's folk, and Thu feared him. Thu has been assigned to destroy Thingol's folk, and he is failing because of Turin. By him was holding the hand of ruin from Thingol's folk. They owed their survival to Turin, and he is given honor. He is appreciated for this. He is praised for this. Everybody knows he is the hero of the marches. He is the one who has kept doom from Doriath. So, um, remember, therefore, when he comes and he has his confrontation with Orgoth, um, Orgoth uh, has some cause for envy of Turin, because of Turin's position, right? Um, But, um, Anyway, okay. Uh, This is a positive expression of Turin. So Turin's, his heart is full of sorrow and of hate. That seems bad, but this seems like a positive expression. Again, especially in the way that it parallels Turin. This seems like a good choice by Turin, right? Um, We see him uh, accomplishing, really, something. Um... Uh, Arthur is asking if this uh, is foreshadowing Turin's role as Morgoth's bane, maybe very distantly. It's not obvious. I mean, we had that idea already introduced back in the Book of Lost Tales, and it's going to come back uh, later on. But, um, uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not it's not a really obvious foreshadowing if it is foreshadowing. But, um, okay. More. Turin and Doriath. Their mirth fell on many. Their minstrels clear did sing to them songs of the city of Tune near Tyne Gwethil, towering mountain, where the great gods sit and gaze on the world from the guarded shores of the Gulf of Fairy. Then one sang of the slaying at the swan ship's haven, and the curse that had come on the kindred since. All silent sat and soundless hearkened, and waited the words save one alone. The man among elves that Morwen bore, unheeding he heard, or high feasting, or lay, or laughter, and looked, it seemed, to uh, to a deep distance in the dark without, and strained for sounds in the still places, for voices that vanished in the veils of night. He was lithe and lean, and his locks were wild, and woodland weeds he wore of brown and gray and green, and gay jewel or golden trinket his garb knew not." I love that expression. His garb did not know gay jewel or golden trinket. Trinket, sorry. 
Um, okay, so this is the uh, this is the immediate context, of course, of his conflict with uh, with Orgoth, which I agree, Erica sounds a whole lot like Morgoth, doesn't it? Um, but anyway, okay, so this is the context. This is the party, right? So there's a party. Mirth is falling on many. Uh, minstrels are singing. They're singing songs of the city of Toon, right? So they're singing songs of of fairy far away, of Tynegwethel, the towering mountain. They're getting in touch with their roots. He's not paying attention, right? He is the man among elves, not paying attention, right? These songs are not for him. Um, the songs of the that paradise now across the sea, even though it's sad because either they have been excluded, you know, either they've left it and can't go back, meaning the Noldoli, or they never made it there. Um, anyway, uh, that um, those are the songs that are being sung. But of course, it's not just that song, right? They do sing, they don't just sing tra la la all the time, right? One sang of the slaying of the Swan Ship's Haven. We're singing a song about the kin slaying, right? And the curse that had come on the kindred since. Gosh, oh man, that kind of seems relevant, doesn't it? So, the curse that's put upon the kin of people that did this thing, and there's kin slaying involved, if it works different, right? Oh man. Um, it's kind of backwards for Turin. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, um, but notice he doesn't, um, he doesn't pay attention to that either. He is lost in his own world. These are elf matters, right? Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, if, uh, if Turin were sitting there at the party tweeting, it would, you know, uh, uh, the slaying at the Swan Ship's Haven and the curse that had come on the kindred since hashtag elf problems, right? It's not a human issue. It's He's got his own problems. Um, he's... but I mean, so even when their own song... Even when he's not totally out of step with it, him thinking about the tragedy that has befallen his people and his own family, in the house of Thingol, the kinslaying is a pretty serious thing, and, and similar, right? So here we have him... It's not a question of him being sad and them being mirthful. They're being sad, too. But notice, all silent sat, and soundless hearkened, and waited the words, right? Everyone is hanging on the words of the singer as he sings uh, about the kinslaying. But Turin isn't paying attention. Um, and uh, that... Um, that... Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Um, yeah, Jordan says nobody in Doriath was involved in the kinslaying. Well, not sure, Jordan. On the one hand, uh, it's not a Noldorin realm, but there are Noldoli there. Um, uh, Orgoth is a gnome. Um, he's it's mentioned explicitly that he's a gnome here, as it was in the Book of Lost Tales as well. Um, so there do seem to be some gnomes who are there, living, you know, Noldoli, living there among uh, the people of Thingol. So um, maybe somewhere, but in any case, uh, it still touches on Thingol closely. 
Um, <laughs> Brianna says Goadriel is hiding at the corner uh, of the party. Yes, of course, Goadriel doesn't exist yet at this point in Tolkien's career. Uh, but yes, in retrospect, we can imagine Goadriel keeping a low profile at this point. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyhow, um, he is... Uh, he's not... I, 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 that's a great way of putting it, Karita. Turin is listening, but not to them. Right, his ears are straining for something else. He's look. He's not. He's not spacing out. Right. He's not uh, uh, ignoring everybody. He's looking into a deep distance in the dark without, like Hurin. Right, looking out at the distance. So again, we see the parallel between him and his father, straining for the sounds in the still places, for voices that vanished in the veils of night. Now, as far as his clothing. Um, Karita asked, does he dress plainly because it's practical, or is this an outward sign of his inward seriousness? Um, both, it seems to be. I mean, he's dressed in woodland weeds, like he just came in from uh, from the woodlands, which he probably did. That's, we know, where he generally is. He's in woodland weeds, he's probably got orc blood splattered on him somewhere or other. I mean, that wouldn't be a bit surprising. Um, but the latter... Part. This is, I think, where the interest of that last turn of phrase lies. Gay jewel or golden trinket his garb knew not. Right? It's not just that he doesn't happen to be wearing jewels or golden trinkets. His clothes are unfamiliar with, J- with gay jewels or golden trinkets. Right? Um, he does not wear them, as a rule. Um, it does seem that this is just flat how he dresses. He does have that swank helm. I agree, Nancy. That's uh, um, that's uh, that's, but it's not just an ornament, of course, right? Um, but he doesn't decorate himself. He doesn't seem to dress up. Now, that could be taken as a sign of disrespect to Thingol, right? I mean, that's um, it's a uh, it's socially dubious that particular action of his. But, again, it seems to reflect the way in which he's kind of out of step with his society. In the midst of the splendor of the court of Thingol, he is still remembering um, his people. He's not going to dress himself in jewels uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and trinkets while his people are struggling and suffering. He's struggling, too. Um, he's going to channel his hate in that constructive way. Um, But his sorrow, so he was seared in his childhood with sorrow. Let's go back and look at that for a minute. Having seen sort of where he grows, let's go backward and look at where that sort of started for him. He says to his mom before leaving, Quickly will I come from the courts of Thingol. Long ere manhood will I lead to Morwen, great tale of treasure and true comrades. For he wist not the weird woven by Bauglir, nor the sundering sorrow that swept between. The farewells are taken, their footsteps are turned to the dark forest, the dwelling fadeth in the tangled trees. Then in Turin leapt his awakened heart, and he... Then in Turin leapt his awakened heart, and he wept blindly, calling, I cannot, I cannot leave thee. O Morwen, my mother, why makest me go? Hateful are the hills where hope is lost. O Morwen, my mother, I am meshed in tears. Grim are the hills, and my home is gone. 
and there came his cries, calling faintly down the dark alleys of the dreary trees, and one who wept weary on the threshold heard how the hills said, My home is gone. I think this is the saddest version of Turin's departure. Um, it's just so painful. We see him putting a bright face on it. We see him speaking bravely to his mother's face, right? Quickly will I come from the courts of things. This is going to turn out real well, right? You'll see. I'm going to make you proud. Right? I'm going to go to the courts of Thingol, and, but I'm going to come back soon. And I'm going to bring treasure with me and true comrades, and we're going to rescue you, and everything's going to be great. Right? He says to her face. And then, having taken his farewells and bravely turned dutifully down the path, uh, as soon as he, as the house fades into the distance and he can't see it between the trees. Then his heart leaps within him, him and he cries out. Cries out to his mother who can still hear him, but who can't see him anymore because he couldn't get himself, apparently, to say this to her face, right? But from a distance he can shout or he can't help but shout. I cannot, I cannot leave thee. Why makest me go? Um... And the alliteration in that line is so painful. Oh, Morwen, my mother, why makest me go? Why is my mother making me go? Why is she parting from me? Why is she putting me away from her? Grim are the hills, and my home is gone. And the echo heard how the hills said, My home is gone. Um, it's... Um, it's so painful. Remember how old he is here? Seven. He's seven here. Same age as my youngest kid right now. He's a second grader um, uh, saying this. Um, so again, we see the child eager to please, almost desperate uh you know, desperate not to leave, but desperate also not to disappoint his mother, but also not understanding what his mother is doing and why his mother is doing it. Um, wanting to see himself as a hero, but um, yet feeling crushed, feeling even betrayed, possibly. More when my mother, why makest me go? Um, uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's just awful. Um, yeah, Erica, he feels abandoned. I agree. He feels abandoned. Um, yeah, Karita, I'm totally going to be using some of these lines in Selmfell. I would absolutely, uh, absolutely do it. Um, okay, uh, I'm not going to keep you terribly and irresponsibly late. Um, the beginning of next time, we will pick up with uh, the Orgoth incident, uh, with the death of Orgoth, and then um, we will look at Turin in the Wild, and in particular, in particular, his relationship with Beleg, and then Beleg's horribly ill-fated rescue of Turin. Um, read through the rest of 
um, read through the, the rest of uh, of version one of uh, of the the lay of the children who are in um, so through part three and we'll come back and we'll 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 cover as much of that as we can for next time and then we'll pick up with uh, with version two after that um, so for next week the rest of version one. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.